Well, good evening. I am delighted to see you this evening. I especially appreciate those who came back after being here yesterday for three uh, very heavy lessons uh, yesterday. And uh, I understand uh, that the uh, topics that we have considered have not been the usual kind of preaching sermonic uh, material, and uh, that in uh, some cases it has become uh, very personal. And uh, maybe some of you are wondering, you know, who is this guy to uh, talk about those kinds of things. In fact, some of you probably too kind, too polite maybe to say uh, what uh, probably would have been in the words of my uh, uh, father as he uh, would listen to uh, the preacher sometimes say, now right there, preacher, where you left off preaching and started meddling. And uh, I have been doing, I think, some meddling probably in the topics that we have included. If not, I am going to uh, as we move on through the series of lessons. And so uh, who are you? And the answer to that question, sadly enough, has to be not much of anybody, actually. I am uh, disappointed at this stage in my life at 75 to have to say that. Uh, I had great ambitions at one time, but uh, those have been... Uh, uh, kind of uh, soundly beaten out of me by life. I have done one great thing in my life, and that is raise four children, uh, but I have to give most of the credit for that to my wife, who has uh, been here and supportive of me uh, this week, as she has throughout the last 40-plus uh, years. Uh, but I have spent the last 40 years, too, thinking quite a bit about culture and human nature and trying to understand those things from a biblical perspective. And it's not quite so important what kind of understanding I have arrived at. It is what we can gather from what the Bible tells us about the way we ought to approach the affairs of life and the things of this world. And so I recognize that uh, there are a number of deeply rooted philosophies in the world in which we live that are in opposition to a biblical worldview. And I have suggested those are modernisms. And in the, talking about those modernisms, uh, we find a number of topics that are uh, necessary for us to encounter. Sometimes even we have to try and understand them in order to be able to refute them or to recognize what Bible passages are appropriate in helping us to sort through those misunderstandings. And so we use for this week a, a, uh, a passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, particularly verse 5, that we are taking every thought captive for the obedience to Jesus Christ. And uh, those are a myriad of thoughts, because men are never, never uh, uh, tired of thinking big thoughts and uh, raising up new and novel ideas. And this evening, we take up one of those thoughts that is going to be uh, uh, kind of touchy, I think, for us as we think about that. That is the issue of environmentalism. Environmentalism, of course, is in some ways one of the most uh, anti-Christian of the social movements in America. It does not refute just some area of God's authority, as is the case with feminism and male-female roles in society, or as would be the case if we dealt some kind of doctrinal issues like Gnosticism or uh, when it deals with the way in which uh, uh, we have to uh, control our uh, our emotions and control our pleasure-seeking as in hedonism or selfism, but it, environmentalism, directly refutes Christ as our Savior 
and uh, God as the creator of the world around about us. And it is here that we as Christians probably as we encounter these modernisms uh, have the most fundamental differences with the environmentalist. But at the same time, we have the most sympathy and are most likely to be enticed into forgetting a biblical perspective and forgetting the biblical principles because of our sympathy with the environment. Uh, you rarely meet people who are not uh, fond of the environment. We all love the air and the water and the land. Sometimes we have our preferences for whether we prefer the beach and the coast or whether we prefer the mountains and the forest. Uh, sometimes we prefer the uh, cold and the snow and sometimes we prefer the heat and the humidity of uh, Florida. But we all enjoy to some extent the glories of the world that God has created for us. And so we are very frequently sympathetic with the perspective of the environmentalist. Whether that has to do with the preserving of the uh, earth and uh, concern about pollution or the major concern that uh, just dominates the field of environmentalism these days, uh, climate change, global warming, or whether it has to do with animal rights or maybe this uh, gets a little closer to the issue uh, where, where we uh, point at which we take issue with environmentalism, uh, population control. Nonetheless, we have some sympathy with these ideas. And yet we need in our sympathy with the environmentalist and their concerns about the environment and about nature, we need to remember what the biblical principles are. And clearly, of course, we got to go back to the very beginning when God says in Genesis 1 and verse 28, to man, fill the earth and subdue it, that he has created the world for us. And we must never forget that as we try and understand what our relationship to nature is. And as I think about that, there are three contrasting views of nature that we might take into consideration. First of all, as we discussed yesterday, there's materialism, the idea that there is no spiritual being named God, there is no personal creator, there is no eternal soul in man, there is no hereafter, that what we see is what we get. The only thing that exists are the things that we can touch and feel and handle the idea of materialism. And we might be surprised when we think about the materialist, the secular humanist, certainly, as we talked about them on Sunday morning, that they are at least theoretically less concerned about the environment than you might have suspected. In fact, in their humanism, they are often quite callous to the environment. Some of them are even contemptuous about the environmentalist and their attempts to uh, pacify the earth and to preserve the earth. Anne Rand and her disciples in particular are going to be contemptuous about those limits that the environmentalists want to place on the ability of man to control and to dominate the earth. Even the Humanist Manifesto speaks glowingly of man's capacity through technology to control and to direct the environment to man's own ends. The materialist really has no reason to uh, think uh, very highly of the, uh, of the earth and the environment because it has no inherent claim on our goodwill. What we are is the 
top of creation and we do what we uh, want to do or what's in our own best interest. And maybe, of course, at some point, we don't want to uh, uh, destroy the environment that we live in, but what we do as humanists want to do is to take it and mold it and shape it into that which will be best and most practically useful to us. The materialists don't really then concern themselves much about the environment, nor do the evolutionists concern themselves much about the environment, at least theoretically they would not concern themselves much about the environment or about the extinction of various species. In fact, the fundamental principle of evolutionary theory is survival of the fittest that as we move through the eons of history as they think exist, that uh, one creature uh, is going to change and develop so that it is better fitted for survival and the others are gonna die out. And this survival of the fittest would suggest, let's just see who, which, which animals are gonna, gonna dominate. And of course, that's mankind. And uh, we continue to evolve and continue to dominate. And so evolutionary philosophy really doesn't have any reason to be particularly concerned about the environment, that uh, it's a matter of the survival of the fittest. And in fact, if we are just animals, as the evolutionists suggest, then why would we be concerned about the environment or about other animals? Why should we be concerned about anything other than our own self-serving interests? Maybe again, at some level, we might say, you know, we need to preserve enough of the earth and its resources so that we can survive on into the next generation. But why would we be concerned about whether uh, animals of some kind are uh, going to survive or other animals are not going to survive? Why, why would it be in our best interest to be concerned about those other animals if, in fact, they are important and valuable to us? We would keep them and use them. If they're not, we would exterminate them. What rule would bind us to... Uh, be kind to other animals and to preserve them if we ourselves are only animals. That just doesn't make any sense. Who made those rules anyway that we ought to be kind to animals? Yes, I know the scriptures tell us that we ought to be kind to the animals, not because they're equal to us, but because the unkindness that we express to animals corrodes our own soul, which God is concerned about, but the environmentalists, they don't have any such rules or any such concerns. So in fact, we have no duty really to protect the environment if in fact the uh, evolutionists are correct. And then you think about this. Ultimately, from a materialistic point of view, it, the whole thing is gonna run down in the future anyway. Maybe it takes a thousand years before an asteroid finally randomly hits the earth and destroys it. Maybe it'll be a million years before the sun begins to fail and uh, we begin to experience some kind of cataclysmic events on the face of the earth. Maybe it will be one generation before our own uh, uh, efforts on the earth begin to make it uninhabitable. But what difference does that make ultimately if you are a materialist? There's nothing in that philosophy to say that we have any kind of uh, responsibility for uh, the, the world around about us. Now, 
you know, one of the things that we might think about is that uh, we'd be concerned about our own comfort. And so, uh, you know, the, the fundamental goal of clean air and clean water, that would make sense. But the evolutionists don't seem to be, or, or the environmentalists don't seem to be satisfied with just being concerned about the, uh, the uh, uh, clean air and the clean water for our own use. As uh, the objectivist institution, the Ayn Rand Institute says, what their goal is is the demolition of technological industrial civilization. Their goal is not the advancement of human health, human happiness, human life. It is rather a subhuman world where nature is worshipped and the totem of some pr religious uh, primitive religions. And, uh, you know, that seems to be really the case. I could understand, you know, as a materialist and evolutionist said, you know, we need to practically control this and we need to limit our use of this and we need to manage this this way. But that doesn't seem to be the goal of the environmentalist. Their goal is somehow, it seems to me, to make the earth, to make nature more important than mankind. And that doesn't come out of materialism. That comes out of a theory, a philosophy, a worldview called pantheism. This belief that God and the world are one, that nature is divine in its own right and is thus sacred, and we have to treat it as if it were sacred. So we have this idea of materialism, there's no God. Pantheism, God is everything. God is imminent in the world, in every living creature, in nature itself. That's a resurgence of the old idea of paganism this pantheistic kind of view that God is in the rocks and God is in the mountain and God is in the streams. And that kind of view does, in fact, raise and elevate nature to the point that it is equal to mankind and provide some kind of rules, if you accept this philosophy, that we ought to make sacrifices for nature rather than binding nature to our own uses. This is, of course, very different from the biblical concept of God as the creator who stands outside of creation, who is transcendent and has created the earth and created it for man. But this pantheistic kind of idea is in many ways alive and well in America today. I, uh, sometimes I have this feeling, I don't know about you, but uh, you know, every time I go to fix something, something else goes wrong. It's almost like, and you know, I, I have to watch myself about this. It's like they're gremlins. It's like they're little imps. It's like they, you know, they know what I want and so they twist it. And that's like, I start thinking about that. And I say, wait a minute. That's pantheistic thinking right there. You know, that's not God. You know, maybe the devil has something to, to do with that. But no, you know, there's this tendency we all have if we're not careful to think about the inanimate things of the world as having some kind of uh, animism to them, as having some kind of spirit to them that may be beneficial or it may be malevolent. And that seems to be something that uh, is, is uh, easily kind of stirred up in people. And Charles Reich in The Greening of America suggests that modern technology is really a war with nature. And so he advocates one of the early kind of environmentalist uh, tomes. He advocates a return to a simpler time 
when men were more in tune with nature, when they were a part of nature as opposed to being the lords of nature. Of course, it's a pretty big assumption to presume that people were ever in tune with nature. Uh, I don't find any evidence of that really in uh, primitive history, and I don't see that in the scriptures very much either. Uh, from the very beginning, when they were cast out of the Garden of Eden, uh, Adam was told that he was going to earn his bread by the sweat of his brow, and that the and that the uh, land was going to fight him with thistles and briars every step of the way. But pantheism is characterized by some kind of adulation of nature lifting it up and giving it a preeminence over man himself that is out of all proportion to what is a biblical point of view. And you might think, you know, as you look up at the night sky or the images from the Hubble Space Telescope and you're filled with feelings of awe and wonder at the overwhelming beauty, at the overwhelming awesomeness of the universe, is this really the most important thing, or should we be turning our attention to the fact that it is God who has created these things, and the awe we feel shouldn't be about the grandeur of space, but it should be about the greatness of the creator who has made those things. When we're in the midst of nature, in a forest or by the sea or on the mountain peak, as we uh, look up or look down, I don't know, which is more inspiring to you, to look up at the peak or to look down of, on, from the top of the peak, but we feel like, you know, we're in, in the midst of some vast cathedral. And that's okay if the cathedral is there to worship God, but if that cathedral is there just to worship itself and to distract us from the fact of the Creator, then that's pantheism. And if you have those kind of feelings, you know, you're leaning in that kind of direction of a pantheistic view of the world. Because the pantheists think of Earth kind of as a living organism. They speak in terms of Mother Nature, not as just some kind of allegory or as some kind of metaphor, but as if Earth really is in some ways our mother, our progenitor, the one who has given us life, and as if, uh, you know, Gaia, the old Greek name for the Earth, has uh, some real claim on our adulation and on our loyalty and on our worship. They think of each living thing as some manifestation of the divine, that God is in everything, in the pieces of wood and in the uh, animals in the forest and in the germs in the soil, and that everything is a manifestation of God, and thus they despair over the loss of a single species, the loss of a single living thing. And that leads them to some kind of vegetarianism. And I'm not talking about eating vegetables for the sake of your health. Clearly, God seems to have proved that it certainly worked for Daniel and his uh, three young friends. But about the idea of eating only vegetables because animals are too sacred to be eaten. And of course, you know, maybe you haven't gone far enough when you're just a vegetarian. Maybe you shouldn't be pulling living things off of the trees or off the bushes. You should wait until they volunteer and fall off themselves. And as far as I know, it's only the Janists who are close to being consistent in their respect for the living things that way as they walk carefully and sweep the street in front of them lest they step on some kind of living thing and kill it. 
and how quickly we resort to antibiotics to kill bacterial infection or maybe even the COVID-19 virus. There's no consistency in this kind of approach. And yet that's the way the environmentalists are likely to think. And maybe more likely, they think about blaming Christians for the problems that exist in the environment around about them. They criticize us for anthropocentricism. You know, centricism is one of those real bad words in the world today. When we are centric and we think our uh, people are better than other people, ethnocentric, or when we are patriotic and we think that our nation is better than other nations, or worse than that, when we are anthropocentric and we think that people are better than the other creatures on the face of the earth, then we're the ones who are the cause of the environmental problems, and it is our pollution, it is our carbon output that is causing the earth to uh, warm or causing the earth to fall apart, and they want to find some solution not in terms of trying to be technologically sophisticated and solve those problems with what has worked for us in the past. They want to move to some kind of Eastern philosophy of religion. They are as much in some ways anti-Christian as they are pro-environment because from their point of view, it is the very fact that the Bible says that God has made us to have dominion over the field to have dominion over the seas, to have dominion over the animals that has caused the problem in the world today. And they are not only anti-Christian and pro-environment and anti-technology, they are anti-people in the sense that there are too many people in the world. Uh, yes, I had, we had four children. I don't know that I should take too much credit for that. My wife was the one that gave them birth, but we had four children. You know, we had two, and uh, then we had another one on the way, and people were like, uh, you know, kind of a little snide about that. You know, there's ways to stop that. You know, it's like, uh, don't you think that's enough? And then we were having the fourth one, and it's like, really, that's a little too much. And this, even from some people who are Christian, there are too many people in the world. There are too many precious souls. Are you kidding me? What values do you get from the Bible that would suggest there are too many people? Now, if you're not taking care of your responsibilities to your children, that's a sin. If you're not taking care of your neighbor and their problems, that's a sin. But to bring children into the world, that's not a sin to to uh, tell people they shouldn't have more children, that might be a sin. There's a sense in which they think, uh, you know, the environment is more important than people. That's not Christian biblical way of thinking about things. Lagarde Smith asked this question. If you had the choice to save the last rare Bengal tigers in the world, the last mating pair of Bengal tigers, or to save... A hundred people. Or maybe put it in this way. You're driving the truck down the mountain and the brakes fail and it's out of control and you reach this fork and over here is the uh, tractor trailer that's carrying the last two Bengal tigers to some kind of really idealistic zoo setting in which they can breed them. And over here is a busload of a hundred children. Which one would you run into? Are, there are people who will tell you, eh, I feel bad about it, but the 100 children are just going to have to go. We need to save the Bengal tigers. 
They are anti-people when they make that kind of decision about that. Some of the problem is a misreading of the relationship of the ancient peoples of the earth to the earth itself. They have this sense that somehow there was a time in which, before technology, before Christianity, uh, corrupted mankind to uh, dominate the earth, there was a time in which people got along with the world. That's one of the reasons this is Indigenous Peoples Day. I said I wasn't even going to talk about that. But it's Indigenous Peoples Day because we can't call it Columbus Day because of all the damage that Columbus did when he came to the United uh, to this country that we now we call the United States of America. And that it was the Europeans with their Christian kind of view, viable view of dominating the earth that came over here and corrupted everything that exists in this uh, part of the world and that the people who were here before them, they got along with the world. They were at peace with the world. They were part of the world, and they were in balance with the world. But that's clearly not the case. There's no history for that. Back in uh, 1993, the New York Times uh, had an uh, article about uh, the, uh, before it was un uh, politically incorrect to do so, they had an article about the damage that ancient peoples had done to the parts of the earth in which they had lived. And they, uh, they beautifully illustrated that and uh, provided all the details about the tribal people uh, who had uh, uh, polluted various parts of, uh, of America uh, because they uh, overfished the streams or they, uh, or they uh, killed too many of the beaver or because they polluted some area because they had camped there too long. In the Mexican highlands, uh, the Aztecs, of course, did extensive damage to the uh, nature around them. Uh, Mesopotamia was brought down by over-irrigation. Uh, and what you find in all of that is that there's always been, whether we're talking about uh, pagan peoples or whether we're talking about uh, Europeans who are principally in many ways Christian or biblical in their point of view, there's always been this war between people and the earth. The Norwegians have been beating back the North Sea for a thousand years, trying to claim as much land as they can from it. You know, there's a misreading of the fact that once upon a time, people, before they were corrupted by, you know, some kind of uh, Christian religion, that they were at peace with and a part of the earth. That's just not the case. There's also this misunderstanding about the robustness of the earth. I've uh, preached this uh, sermon uh, in Georgia, and I preached this sermon in California, and uh, I'll tell you there's a world of difference when you preach it in a place where people recognize the robustness of the earth and of nature, where the kudzu is pulling down the uh, fences. They're like not too much concerned about we got to preserve the earth. They understand you got to fight the weeds all the time or they'll take over. But you move to some more fragile areas like in California uh, or the alpine uh, meadows in uh, Montana and Canada. And yes, it's pretty easy to do a great deal of destruction there. But for the most part, the earth is pretty robust. Mount St. Helens recovery after the 1980 blast has just astonished the geologist who thought, you know, this, is, uh, this will never recover. Or after the uh, uh, Gulf War in Iraq, the uh, destruction of the Kuwait oil fields, they said this is going to be a nuclear winter. 
But all of that is uh, forgotten in the past because of the robustness of the environment. Here's one of the things that uh, uh, is problematic about the environmentalist uh, concern with global warming, is they think they can predict the future. And it's like, that's a pretty tough task to predict the future. Uh, 1900, you ask people what the major problem in America was. The major problem in America is what are we going to do with all the horses in New York City? How are we ever going to have enough horses for the transportation, the number of people we have? And how are we going to have enough blacksmith? And how are we going to have enough people to get rid of all the horse dung that's uh, polluting the streets? That's the big problem. That's not a problem anymore. You go back to the 1950s and you say, what's the big problem in popular mechanics? They don't have any idea. The predictions were all wrong about that. We have no way of predicting what's going to happen in the future. We do know what's going to happen to the lives of people if we follow the path that the environmentalists want us to follow. We're going to impoverish a large number of people. We're going to lose a lot of human lives because we have not used the resources that we have to provide for prosperity, to provide heat, and to provide food for millions of people. The Earth is a whole lot more robust than they would like to think that it is. But what we really want to talk about is a correct biblical point of view about the environment. And of course, that has to begin with the fact that God is the creator and God is the sustainer of the world. Psalm 24 and verse 1 remind us that the earth is the Lord's. Psalm 50 and verse 12, the world is mine, he says. And Colossians 1 and verse 17, he reminds us that in him all things consist. He's the sustainer of the world. I don't know whether this is a correct view about that or not, but I like to think of it this way. God right now is every moment in every place paying attention to all of the laws of nature, gravity, and uh, the uh, strong and the weak nuclear forces, and Planck's constant. It is all in his mind, and as long as he thinks about it and keeps it going, it will operate as he intended it to operate. But when he ceases to think about it, when he chooses not to think about it anymore, it will all disappear. He is the sustainer of everything that is in the world. And you recognize that uh, unlike the Gnostic view, the world that God created is good. It's not as the Gnostics thought. Spirit is good. Flesh is bad. God created a world that is good. He created a world that he said was good. Uh, Genesis 1 and verse 31 Indeed, it was very good when he looked at the creation of the earth and the creation of man. Psalm 19 and verse 1, he reminds us that the heavens that he has created declare his glory. And, uh, you know, there have been uh, innumerable attempts probably upon the part of mankind to build a cathedral that does justice to the greatness and the glory of God. There have been incredible uh, attempts of art to try and capture in some realistic way or some abstract way the kindness and the graciousness and the love in the face of Jesus Christ. There have been innumerable efforts to capture the wonder of what God has done in this world for us, and yet all of those pale in the insignificance compared to the, the glory that God's created for himself 
in the world that he has made, in the, uh, in the way in which it operates, in the face of a child, and in the face of the mother who looks at the child. God has created his own kind of glory in those things, and we ought to appreciate that and recognize it for what it is. But unfortunately, what uh, people today fail in is to look at the world and to say, this tells us about God. It is there for us to see, and we ought to look and we ought to see. And I appreciate the songs, because the songs have uh, put the proper emphasis where it belongs. Impressed by the world, but that leads us to be impressed by the God who created these things. And you recognize this, too, from a biblical point of view, that God has given man the earth. It belongs to us. In Genesis 1 and verse 28, he said, fill the earth and subdue it. And, of course, right there is where the environmentalists are going to take their stand and say it's Christianity. It's this Judeo-Christian philosophy of dominating the earth and subduing it that has led to all the pollution and the damage to the world today. Uh, maybe we could have done it better. Maybe we will do it better in the future. But you can't refute the fundamental teachings of Scripture that the earth was made for man and not man for the earth. And uh, the Lord took the man, put him in the garden, and he said, keep it. And, of course, there's a sense in which God has given us a responsibility to take care of the things that he has given us. There is this principle of stewardship that we have a responsibility for whatever resources God has given us. Those of us who have some kind of uh, physical health or talent, that's something that we ought to use to God's glory, and we have to use it wisely. Those who have money are stewards of that kind of uh, resource, and they need to use it for God's glory and for the benefit of mankind. Uh, we, we certainly recognize that there's this sense of, uh, of stewardship throughout the Scriptures. That uh, when they came out of uh, Egypt, God said to them, you shall have a Sabbath rest. You're not slaves any longer. I have claimed you. You're mine, and you can trust in my providence, and you can take one day off a week and not do any work. And he extended that in Exodus chapter 23 uh, to say, you should give the land a rest too. You should let the land have a Sabbath. And, of course, uh, you know, maybe that's uh, just uh, as some people will, will, will try and interpret those passages. It's not just a, a, a metaphor or principle for us to earn. It's, it's actually, actually helpful to us that you rotate the fields, you rest the land. But we need to use those things in a way that is practical. We need to use those things in a way that's not wasteful, that is, are as good stewards. Because it's required of a steward that they should be faithful in the things that they do. Even in times of war, that's not a reason for destroying the earth. And, of course, uh, you can think about any number of occasions in uh, human warfare in which the strategy for success was to burn the crops, was to chop down the trees. But God told his people, and he would expect, I think, all of us to understand those rules, just because you're engaged in a war is no excuse for destroying the earth and destroying the fruit of the earth that uh, you will not uh, cut down the trees, you'll not burn the fields, you'll not, uh, you'll not destroy the land and plant it with salt when you're engaged in war. There are other ways to win. Along with stewardship, of course, do not forget 
There is dominion. God has given us dominion over the earth. And uh, ultimately, of course, we have to recognize, though we are good stewards, that the earth is for man's use. That it is not the animal's rights that ought to be elevated to the same level as man's rights. It's not ecological concerns that should take precedence over the well-being of thousands or millions of human beings. It is not the uh, concern about uh, uh, research ethics with animals that should take precedence ahead of human medical needs. We are given dominion over these things from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 and 27. God has said that uh, we have dominion over the fish and the cattle and the birds and every creeping thing. And he made this world for us to occupy and to subdue and to use for our purposes. Have dominion, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. Those are real words, and they have a real meaning. And any biblical perspective about the environment has to understand that uh, the, 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 the creation of God, great as it is in the earth, pales into insignificance by the creation of mankind. And uh, the, the psalmist out in the fields at night looks at the same sky we look at. He sees the same vast universe that we, well, actually, we probably don't see it as well as he did. Uh, those particularly who live close to the big cities just don't see the myriad of stars, you know, uh, Many, many children have read in the scriptures about uh, how God promised Abraham his descendants would be as many as the stars in the heavens, and it didn't make that much uh, impression on them because all they see are a few of the biggest ones. But when you get out, as David was, uh, no technology, no lights, and you can see it, and even then, he says, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you've ordained. What is man that you are mindful of him? And it's not in the demeaning sense that the environmentalist might want to interpret that. It is the fact that you have made man to have dominion over all of this. Amazing that God has given us all of these things, made us a little lower and only a little lower than uh, the... Uh, the angels, and that he has made us to have dominion over all of those things. You know, you just have to marvel as we uh, see, and of course, a stalled space program, but uh, satellites and, uh, you know, uh, space stations and landing on the moon and plans for going to Mars, you know, amazing technological feats. But maybe in some ways that's exactly what is intended by God it certainly fits with the biblical perspective much more than it does with the environmentalist, pantheistic perspective. Of course, this does not mean that uh, we can do whatever we want. There's no license for pillaging the earth. Good stewards, even though they have dominion, have to be responsible. And the first requirement that God gave to man was to till, not to kill, in the garden. And uh, we need to understand that uh, we have responsibility to the earth. There's no doubt about that. But that responsibility does not mean that we are not to use it for the benefit of mankind. It does mean 
that man is more important than the earth. And that being more important than the earth, if we have a choice between whether ecological damage occurs or whether we aid human beings, that we always choose the help that we can provide for human beings, not the uh, environment. People are more important because God made the earth so that he could people it with human beings. He made it for us. And man is more important than the earth. And you just, there's so many ways you can see it. But in Genesis chapter 6, in a remarkable passage, God says, I've looked at mankind and his wickedness is so great. I repent that I made him. And I'm going to flood the whole earth in order to punish man for his wickedness. God who created it says man is more important and delivering the appropriate punishment and the appropriate message to mankind is so important. It is more important than the environment. And I am going to fill the earth with water in order to punish man. I'll tell you this. One of the things that the uh, environmental is concerned about is pollution. And there are some environmental problems that we face. But God has anticipated that before. And he says, you know, there's pollution in the land. And the pollution in the land can be cured if, in fact, people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then they will forgive, then I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. And of course, uh, you know, we, we might encounter people who read that passage and think they can read it metaphorically or in some kind of an analogy. But uh, you read through the Old Testament and the way in which God dealt with his people of Israel and with the land in which they lived, you'll recognize the fact of the matter is God's not so concerned with uh, plastic water bottles. He's not so concerned with uh, smoke coming from uh, the stacks of factories. What he's concerned about is with the kind of pollution that really pollutes the land. Leviticus 18, the land is defiled and the land will vomit you out because you've defiled it. And what's the kind of defilement? It's not pesticides, and it's not chemicals, and it's not landfills that have defiled the land. It's abortion and homosexuality. It is the blood of innocent children crying from the ground. It is the kind of perverse behavior that people have engaged in. It's the cruelty of man toward man. That's the kind of sin that pollutes the earth, not the kind of, uh, of sin that uh, the... Uh, uh, environmentalists would make us concerned about. Jeremiah uh, reports God's attitude about that. They've defiled my land. They filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their abominable idols. The kind of attitude that people have toward God, the kind of uh, blasphemous language that they use, the kind of uh, casual disregard of his laws, that's what pollutes the land. That's what needs to be cured, not the kind of thing that the environmentalists are concerned about. And the, and the solution, of course, ultimately is in, uh, in God's word as well, in Jesus Christ. Just think about the kind of pollution that has occurred. I, even maybe horror of horrors, think about it from the environmentalist point of view. The 
refuse, the carcasses of the fetuses that they've aborted, a million a year since Roe v. Wade, on average, 50 million people who have been aborted and disposed of. That's a pollution in the land. The kind of homosexual perversion that has been glorified and somehow, I, it's just astonishing to me, has been lifted up and elevated to be equal to the kind of union that God intended between a man and a woman, the one flesh relationship that he blessed and said it's very good. That's pollution in the land, I'll tell you, that somebody ought to be concerned about. Divorce. God says, I hate divorce, the kind of uh, breaking of a trust and a covenant between a man and a woman. That's pollution in the land. The abandonment of children, the abuse of children, the bringing of children into the world who already are corrupted by the kind of, uh, of a drug dependency that their mothers have foisted on them. That's a pollution in the land. There's something needs to be done about that, and that's what we ought to be concerned about. The sort of uh, you know, unfair usury in which uh, one uh, uh, person takes advantage of another person because they have something and the other does not. That's pollution. I'll agree about that. We need to do something about that. The indifference and cruelty of man toward man. That's the pollution that we ought to be concerned about. These are the things that defile the land in the eyes of God. And the only cure for that, of course, is repentance and a return once again to the God of heaven who created the earth and created man to live in the earth and have dominion over it because the earth was made for man's sake, not man for the earth's sake. But that's not the way the environmentalists think about it. Edward O. Wilson talks about... Uh, uh, this and the kind of terminology of the evolutionist, Darwin's dice rolled badly for the earth when man evolved. They wish there was a more benign kind of animal that had uh, uh, survived and was now dominant on the face of the earth. Paul Ehrlich, one of the early proponents of the population bomb, suggested the American people are like a cancer on the earth. We're like a disease on the face of the earth, and there needs to be some virus that comes along and wipes us off. Federal laws, a hundred more federal laws protecting the environment, but most of them are anti-business, and thus they're anti-people. They impoverish people. They take away from people the opportunity for jobs. They take away from people the opportunity for growing the food that they depend upon. They take away from people the opportunity to heat their homes. One of the examples that uh, we saw early on was Sri Lanka and the malaria deaths. There were a million people dying of malaria every year. And then they began to use DDT and destroy the mosquitoes, and they reduced it to absolutely zero deaths from malaria. And then they banned the DDT, and there were a million deaths again. Now, fortunately, we have found technological solutions to that. We don't have to use the DDT and the pesticides, and we can still preserve many people from malaria. But which is more important? I don't know what damage the DDT was actually doing, whether that was the cause of the silent spring that Rachel Carson was so concerned about. But I do know this. 
A million people are valuable in the eyes of God. A million people a year are valuable in the eyes of God. And I know this, too, that the federal programs about uh, the way in which uh, we uh, can use pesticides or the way we can uh, farm or the kind of uh, pollution that we are allowed or the, or the uh, edicts against uh, draining this land or, uh, or, uh, or irrigating this land add, estimates are, at least $1.5 billion to the cost of food yearly when we have over a billion people a year that are living in poverty and hunger because we don't have enough food. And of course, there are all kinds of problems about how do you distribute that. And more than that, there are 5 million people a year who die from cold in the world. And uh, now we want to uh, eliminate the use of fossil fuels, which is the easiest and cheapest way to heat those homes. Maybe there are better solutions. But I'll tell you, we're not going to find those solutions when we take the pantheist point of view and we presume that uh, the earth is more important than people because that's fundamentally anti-biblical. People are more important than uh, the uh, earth, and uh, we need to understand that that's the case. And we need to uh, devise some kind of ways in which to be good stewards and at the same time have the appropriate biblical values as we try and uh, uh, give people the kind of chance that God has created the earth to give them instead of taking it away from them with some kind of uh, unrealistic environmental approaches and worse than unrealistic that are anti-biblical in their understanding of man's relationship to the world. You know, these environmentalists in some ways are the true children of Rousseau who wrote glowingly about the way in which we ought to govern ourselves and the way we ought to educate children. And he took all five of his children and left them on the doorsteps of the uh, foundling home in the city in which he lived. The environmentalist groups do not accept the moral standards that uh, the uh, 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 value of people is greater than the value of the earth. And I understand this too. There are thousands, millions of people who are concerned about the environment around the world who don't accept the fundamental premises of this pantheistic environmental view. But we need to be very careful that we don't allow ourselves to be influenced by those views to the point that we make unbiblical and ungodly decisions about the way in which we will deal with the environment. We need to understand what the real pollution is. We understand what the real solution is. And the real pollution is the sins of mankind. And the real solution is only in Jesus Christ, who has come and died for the sake of sinners. And, uh, you know, that, that God in heaven would come down and die for, you know, some of the people that live on the face of this earth so that they might have a chance to be... Uh, uh, forgiven and restored to a right relationship with God, and we're not concerned enough about people that we put their well-being ahead of the environment, or that we don't think enough of their well-being to preach the gospel message, because there's only one hope for mankind, and it's not in the environment. There's only one hope, and that's in Jesus Christ. God can deliver us from whatever kind of circumstances we find ourselves in. And most importantly, he can deliver us from the sins that have condemned us in eternity. Jesus has come. And we should sing and preach that message every time we have a chance. 
If you're here this evening and you understand your need before God, then he is here. Jesus invites you to come, and we sing this song to encourage you. <laughs>